0: good another good yeah I think it's better so I'm grateful to be here uh, this is my first time at CIMC um, I have chosen a, a topic for tonight that uh, is uh, I believe has great value um, it, um it's not really a very uh, famous topic. Um, I have to maybe preface this. I'm I'm a problems man. I, I don't do the nice bits of Buddhism. You know, <laughs> compassion, insight,
1: <laughs>
0: clear light of bliss, contentment. Um, I've I've been fascinated with the problem side of Buddhism. Um, uh, hindrances, distortions. Uh, fetters, uh, hang-ups, and such things. So, I've I've mollified my approach tonight by, by offering the gateways of liberation at the end. But I, <laughs> just to, um, to do uh, justice to what's going to come, I probably spend more time on the problem side, so bear with me on this, because I think uh, it is one of the contributions of early Buddhism to have a particularly hands-on grasp of the problem side of human existence. And I've, although not immediately apparent how this should be inspiring, I have actually found the outcome of this uh, approach quite uh, inspiring. So the, um, the key term in these uh, distortions of mind, as they're translated in Pali, is vipalasa. This is dangerously close to vipassana, but very, very different in currency, you know? So, well, vipassana, from vipassati to gain insight or to see through, uh, is a highly desirable quality. In the time of the Buddha, generally referred to as a fruition. So, vipassana was not something you did. Vipassana is something you received when you did the exercise. Uh, nowadays, the word seems to change its uh, meaning slightly. Vipassana is, for many people, something we do. <coughs> it is a, uh, has come to mean a particular approach to meditation rather than the result of that meditation. It's very different from vipalasa. The word vipalasa, a little later, I'll come to the etymology of it, speaks of a fundamental distortion of uh, operating in the way we experience the world and the way we experience ourselves it 's no secret that the, the major culprit sort of in the Buddhist demonology is ignorance. You know, if we have one bad scapegoat in there, this guy is called ignorance. Ignorance comes of many uh, of many varieties, uh, the most harmless varieties. Uh, uh, a, a humble lack of information. And uh, at the farther end of the spectrum, you have basically principles of resistance and denial. It is the stubborn insistence not to take note of something that stares into our face. So um, the two other poisons of mind, desire and aversion, tend to be more, let's put it, um, they declare themselves more if they reach a certain intensity, it's usually difficult to deny to oneself that one is greedy, or that one is angry. The initial stages of greed and anger are easily easily confused with, a, um, say, greed comes across as often an instinctual relish or as a kind of natural response to things that are nice, and uh, aversion often comes across in its initial stages, camouflaged as a sort of reticence, uh, reserve, a natural, critical bend of mind maybe, something slightly distancing. And uh, only when they get more intense, generally, it becomes obvious what the emotional punchline is. In terms of greed, you know, when we get all too goggle-eyed, then generally it becomes even to ourselves apparent, well, usually our surroundings know already that we are under the influence of greed. With anger, it's similar. While we we may think we're still uh, in a rational argument about something to everybody else, the aversion has become obvious That is operating in our, say, speech or our... uh, uh, gestures or uh, mimical patches. That means the <coughs> two poisons of mind, of greed and hatred, they reveal themselves, even to us after a certain intensity is reached. That the th- the same cannot be said of ignorance. We can be highly deluded, uh, without necessarily knowing or having any signs that we are deluded. In, in so far, ignorance is the most critical of the three poisons of mind. Ignorance does not come with a big board saying uh, "ignorance." Yeah. It does not show itself with such clear signs as does greed or does anger. So, Buddhist traditions have always rated ignorance as the major problem. In fact, you may recall some of you have, I'm sure, seen depictions of. The Wheel of Becoming, most famous in its t- Tibetan versions. And you see Lord Yama holding the mirror yeah, with the realms, five or six realms, the twelve links of dependent arising. Um, and in that, in the center of the wheel or of the mirror, depending how you translate this, you have three animals. The poor pig very intelligent mammal, has to stand for ignorance. The rooster, because of his uh, delight in procreative activity, stands for greed. And the snake, again, I think it sounds unfair, has to stand for aversion or hatred. And in some of the depictions, you actually see that the rooster and the snake come out of the mouth of the pig. In other words, it is ignorance that gives rise to greed and hatred. Only under the sway of ignorance can we actually believe that happiness can come by acting, enacting our greed, or by enacting our hatred. So, ignorance really is the central of those poisons of mind, and Buddhist traditions are are full uh, of references to such ignorance and of practical attempts to undo that ignorance. Unfortunately, the term ignorance, avidja is one of them, or moha is another one, more in its delusive uh, facet. Unfortunately, these terms don't actually explain an awful lot. So, uh, it is very interesting to look at how Ignorance operates. That's where the vipalasas come in. Ignorance operates on different levels of our experience in different ways. And that is what the teaching of the vipalasa addresses. It speaks how ignorance functions psychologically. It's the mechanics of ignorance that we find in the teaching of the vipalasa. That teaching is uh, a lot less uh, known than... uh, would be good for us, I believe. Um, it is um, something one finds across the Buddhist traditions. It's there in Pali, although only in seed form. Yeah, it's mentioned, but it's not one of the big lists. It's not in one of the big lists. Yeah, it is not um, broadly explained. Uh, it is, however already planted, and later Buddhist tradition, the commentarial tradition in uh, Pali, and also later Buddhist traditions have uh, made ample use of that teaching. In fact, we find it across the 1500 years of creative development of Indian Buddhist thought. Um, So this is not something small. What does the word mean? The word vipalasa or viparyasha, as they're called in Sanskrit, Ashati means to throw and the prefix V means something is overthrown, it's turned on its head. Yeah. So something has is literally turned on its head. The word is used for a cart that is upturned with its wheels sticking into the air. Um, so translators have struggled with the term and have variously described it as inversions or perversions or I think distortions comes fairly close. You have to think of something that is put on its head. I think the English metaphor does that justice. Something is contrary to how it actually ought to be or how it ought to function. Now, these vipalassas, in a nutshell, they deny the three characteristics of existence. That's what they basically always do. Every of those vipallasas has as a final consequence that we're in, in denial of either impermanence or the uh, conditionality aspect and the suffering that goes with that conditionality aspect in our lives, or with the impersonality of our experience. So, if we are under the sway of those vipallasas, basically, it means we do deny, subtly, consciously or unconsciously, those three characteristics, or any one of them. So, what can be said? Uh, Vipalassas operate objectively... That means in the result, if we look at the outside outside effect of what the consequences when vipalasas are happening, um, by creating or believing, seeking or seeing permanent experience in what is inherently impermanent. That's the first one. It seeks and it sees. These two things are important to keep together and yet to keep apart. It is both the experience of actual perceptual uh, awareness that is distorted, thus we see things as permanent that are in fact not permanent, but we also seek permanence. It's not just that we look at it like, like that, we also seek it to be construed in a permanent way. In what is intrinsically uh, impermanent. So the first one construes in what is intrinsically anicca, uh, something nija.
1: Yeah.
0: Remember, the Buddhist teaching is, is a very uh, powerfully co- contradicts Vedic and Upanishadic teaching. Yeah? The big thing about Vedic and particularly Upanishadic teaching is a um, something called an atman, yeah? a self with a capital S. And such a self, such an Atman, is permanent. It is Nietzsche. It is uh, content. It is easeful, or it is blissful, called Sukha. Uh, And it is personal. There is a profound (coughs) notion of individuality which is uh, considered as Atman. Yeah. So the the great creation of pre-Buddhist teachings of Upanishadic teaching is the creation of an essence of human being that endures through time, that endures past death, and that is intrinsically happy, it is intrinsically eternal, and it is intrinsically personal. Yeah. The, the Sanskrit terms are very easy to understand. They're Nitya, sukha, and atta. And the Buddhist teaching uh, that takes many, many things from previous religion. Yeah? This is important to understand. Buddhism has borrowed a lot from Upanishadic, from Vedic teaching, from the uh, from the Jainas. So the Buddha has invented very little. His ingenuity does not lie in his inventing new stuff. His ingenuity lies in reformulating. But one of the things he very clearly disagreed with was the the nitya sukha Atta approach. And he obviously coined his three characteristics of universal experience, namely of impermanence, which is Anitya, of Dukkha, that's the unsatisfactory, unsatisfactoriness of all experience, and he was not in agreement with the notion of Anatman, so he said all experience is Anatta, not just conditioned experience, even the unconditioned experience is still anatta. So you have to understand, in those hallmarks of existence, in those three lakanas, lies the counter position the Buddha has taken to his uh, religious establishment around him. This position carries right into the teaching of these uh, viparyashas. So the first one we have had is acknowledging that there is something in us that both sees perceptually and seeks from our heart base uh, to find solidity, stability, and permanence in what is not such. The second form of distortion uh, construes happiness in what is intrinsically bound up with forms of unsatisfactory, what cannot give us fulfillment or contentment. In other words, uh, the Viparyasa consists of seeking Sukha in what is dukkha. Yeah. Or, uh, if you want the um, the um, Mullah Nasruddin version, you know, it's the man who has a box of peppers and he kind of picks one and puts it in his mouth, bites it and pulls a face because it's sharp and hot and bitter. And he you know swallows this one and then he goes for the next one and bites in it and makes again the face and his friend comes and asks what are you doing nasruddin what are you doing and nasruddin says i'm i'm looking for the sweet one <laughs> <laughs> so this would be the Mullah nasruddin version of uh, the second viparyasha of seeking that which is sweet in that which is intrinsically bound up with pain uh, frustration and some degree of bitterness in that which is Dukkha. The third of these viparyayas uh, consists of seeing and seeking selfhood in what is basically not ours, what doesn't belong to us, what is impersonal. <coughs> in other words, recreating in an act of appropriation, out of the things I experience, something that I believe to be mine, truly and perfectly mine. My power, my insight, my health, my strength, my importance, my love, my fame, my control, my merit. This act is a profound act. In a world that is all too evidently impermanent and all too evident evanescent, psychologically we seek for stability. In fact, we need the illusion of stability. For some time, at least, we need that illusion. In the midst of changing conditions, it is important that there are people who take care of us and create order, create structure, create safety, create predictability, at least for some time, that we can grow up and then gradually be weaned off that illusion of stability they have successfully created for us. That's what development means. We are given... Um Something to start working with, and then gradually find out that it wasn't quite as true as we thought it was you know? It's like going to school you know? first of all, you are kind of taught to use many, many adjectives you know? so you, you use many, many adjectives, you describe a fire, you know it does this, and it does that and that yeah you know? teaches is very good, very good, you know a couple of years later, you go to the same school and you say. You use you, many adjectives, and people say this is childish. Stop doing adjectives. You know this is good, good prose. Works with verbs. Yeah, you know, it's economy. It's it's the hard hitting, hard hitting verb that does the job. You know you have to boil this down. Stop this kind of infantile playing with adjectives. <laughs> so both are true, and both speak of a developmental process. That is the case in our lives. We need stability, clear structures and safety in which we can grow up only to find out that things are not as safe, that things are not as stable, and the things are definitely not in control as we initially believed. So, psychologically, we crave stability, safety, control, predictability. And we keep seeing that where it doesn't exist, and we keep seeking that because we wish it to be there. Well, that is the third of the viparyashas. All three, you notice, contradict completely the basic characteristics the Buddha speaks of as having as being something to be reconciled with, yeah? impermanence, suffering and impersonality. The fourth of the viparyashas is interesting. It seeks the beautiful, it seeks subha, that which is beautiful, in what is intrinsically not beautiful. The the Buddha speaks of a habit of mind, of a distortion of mind, largely due to fantasy and wishful thinking, that construes beauty where there isn't intrinsic beauty. You know, the first three are uh, characteristics of the universe. The first one, asuba, is not a characteristic of the universe. The Buddha doesn't say this is an intrinsically ugly world. There's nothing attractive here. There's nothing beautiful here. He doesn't say that. The fourth one is purely psychological. It is not a characteristic of the universe to be intrinsically ugly. Let's say like it is intrinsically impermanent. However, we have an an inherent tendency of creating things to be more beautiful than they actually are. To beautify, to embellish, to uh, spruce up. And he speaks of that as a distortion of mind. So, if we call these four results of the working of Vipalassa objective, namely, this is what they do outside. Okay? We don't know yet where the Vipalassas actually work psychologically. That's where we look, turn the other way around and we look, which part of our system do these vipallasas affect? and on the subjective side, we get basic, basically three domains in which we are victims of such distortions. The first domain is the domain of perception. We are highly effective at the level of perception. Our perceptual apparatus operates in a distorted way if we are unfree. Yeah. The second layer on which this operates, vipalasas operate, it's basically our heart and our thinking. It's we are uh, cognitively and emotionally um, warped. We have warped responses to the world as it is. This is called citta vipalasa. We don't respond to things in an appropriate way. The third layer Maybe the most easy and maybe the most obvious layer is called TV palasa, and this is the layer of explicit theoretical uh, forms of understanding. In other words, we have adopted a view, or we have come to a theoretical uh, position that contradicts the world as it is, that contradicts uh, the nature of experience that is accessible to us when... Uh, scrutinized more carefully. So, outside we have the denial of impermanence in creating stability where there isn't any, the denial of suffering in creating happiness where there isn't any, the denial of of impersonality, the creation of selfhood where there isn't any, and finally, the the denial of that which is unbeautiful by creating... (coughs) things to be more beautiful than they are. That's the objective results. The subjective realms in which we are affected by these vipalasas is the realm of perception, the realm of our thinking, and the realm of our emotional response, and finally the realm of ditti, of view of theoretical uh, constructs. So let me try to flesh that out so that it doesn't get more abstract than it probably already is. Yeah? What would be an example of a Ditti Vipalasa, according to Buddhist understanding? If I create, or if I postulate something as eternal, I create a God, my own soul, or the sun out there. If I postulate any of these things to be eternal, then that would qualify as a Ditti Vipalasa. I don't think there is a God out there that has created me. I don't think I have a soul that endures over time and is uh, the the carrier of my individuality. And I definitely don't believe that the sun out there is eternal. It may last a lot longer than I will be lasting, but uh, there are good indications that it is not eternal it moves, it burns up, it consumes itself. So, any of such statements would be a clear, distorted view. The postulation of any of those would be examples that either I have a God that is eternal, or a creator, or... uh, A great spirit, or whatever you might want to choose, to give uh, this eternity to this such a creation, or you might decide that part of you is eternal, that there is an undying soul in here that moves on after the body dies, moves on to another body, or that stays uh, untouched by by impermanence. Or else we might have a a theory, you know, a particular theory that. Basically, happiness is more abundant than suffering, or, or we might have a political theory that the equal distribution of material wealth leads to happiness of all participants, or something like that yeah? or you can you know you can add a number of theories you could add the neoliberalists uh, on here, or uh, any conspiracy theory would go in very well in here so. <laughs> but, So any such statement basically seems not to stand closer scrutiny. Now, such theories have wreaked quite a bit of havoc. Uh, If you look into history, then you've seen people have done a lot of bloodshed, you know, so people a little closer to where I am at home uh, have decided that due to the perceived supremacy of their race, it's perfectly all right to butcher millions of other people and invade the continent and do a lot of damage and wreak havoc. People in the name of the equal distribution of wealth have done a lot of convincing other people, initially politically, later militarily, and even later more totalitarily, uh, have tried convincing that their theory is right. The uh, history of the world is rife with theories, and people have done all kinds of violence to defend their theories, to convince other people of their theories. Um, and the bloodshed is quite is, is conspicuous, isn't it? If we look at this, let's uh, say, history of colonialization or uh, what in the name of religion has been done. Even Buddhist religion, you know, Buddhists, although nicer than the lot, uh, still have, Displayed remarkable degrees of ignorance in the course of centuries. If you bother to look a little more closely, uh, you find uh, remarkable uh, pieces of history that are maybe less known. But you know, Buddhists have butchered each other and have burnt each other's monasteries. And uh, although one cannot really justify such things in the name of the Buddha, Buddhists nevertheless uh, have done such things. They have, on the whole, behaved better than most other religions because there's very little... uh, Even an an ignorant and distorted mind finds it difficult to justify bloodshed with Buddhist religion. But uh, Buddhists as such are not really uh, free from ignorance. And wherever ignorance is operating, generally pain is not far ahead. So we have... Such theories as examples of uh, a clear Diti Vipalasa. Uh, Diti Vipalasa is probably not the biggest problem when it comes to distortions of mind. The real trouble kicks in with our response to the way we experience things, um, because much of our response to the way we experience things is as if the world was very, very different from what it actually is. We keep pretending, although we claim to know that things are impermanent, we claim to know that things don't really belong to us, and we claim to know that things are intrinsically bound up with some form of unease and uh, discontent and unsatisfactoriness, we keep behaving as if it was otherwise, isn't it? We know an awful lot about these things, and yet... Our impulses, our heart, and often enough our actions just seem to be the contrary of what would be the normal conclusion if we had really let that in. In other words, we know these things, but we don't really live there. Yeah. We know about these things. Now, why is that the case? It's difficult to explain. You know, we all know about impermanence. We all know about the futility of control, yet, you know, I bet you know in all of our lives we have tremendous amount of effort to establish forms of control, to establish forms of permanence, to establish forms of uh, certainties and of stability. I would be very surprised if you tell me you're not doing this. So why, why is it that we all, without denying impermanence, keep acting as if we could actually, you know, although the law basically applies to us as well, but we could somehow you know, get away with it Just have our little island here safe and stable and predictable and, you know, running, sailing, a raft in all this sea of impermanence. You know, why do we do that? It's easy to make fun of it, but why, when I already know about something like impermanence, if I'm a meditator, I have seen many a breath rise and fall, why do I still act as if I hadn't seen this? It's simple. It's because of the vipalasa. Because these vipallasas are subtle and insidious reframing of our experience along the lines of our liking. It is the reframing of our experience right from the level of perception. That's where things begin. Yeah, Pasa, contact. And then you have uh, Vedana your affective response to this, hedonic response to his liking and not liking. And then you have a form of sanya, yeah. perception. That's the serialized sense data being put together. You know? So, if I look at somebody's face, uh, my eyes are doing rapid scanning movements around the eyes, around the mouth, around the nose of my uh, of my fellow being. And then, when I've done enough of this, those sensory data are kind of serialized into a perception. He says, oh, this is Peter. God, he looks tired. Yeah? But before that has happened, you know, a lot of sense data has had to be acquired. And then the sense data gets bundled together, and then it's compared with my memory banks. Yeah? But there is enough in his face to rem- re- remind me of the Peter I have seen two weeks ago. Yeah? And then I come up with an unfavorable uh, comparison. Yeah. What I remember from two weeks ago had a, a few wrinkles less, and no bags <laughs> under the eyes, so he looks tired now, or he must have been ill. But still I recognize Peter. Yeah? And what I get is a label <coughs> put on top of a completely fresh experience, and yet it gets a part of the information from my memory. So perception is always... Partly new and partly old. Perception puts something that is essentially moving into a frame. That's why perception is always partly true and partly wrong. Even the best perceptions are partly wrong, because they were true of something which isn't the case anymore. It has moved in the meantime. Yeah, it's <coughs> moved on. So on the level of perception, I can easily find these. De- distortions to be active. The level of perception, I get little pictures, I get little frames, I get little labels for something that is completely in a flux. (coughs) And having little labels and little frames and little concepts helps me to refer to it, to talk about it, to think about it, but I do that at the expense of it being really accurate. The more I can think about it, the more I can name it, the more I can refer to it, the less accurate it is, because it has changed in the meantime. Yeah? My possibility to refer to it conceptually comes at the price of having lost the immediate connection with it. So, on a perceptual level, Sanya vipalasa denies particularly impermanence. Because I have a neat little frame and a neat little percept, out of which I then create a concept, um... I deny tacitly that the thing actually moves. I deny that it arises and that it ceases. I deny that it is never really stable. And because I deny that, it gets a lot more solid. It gets a lot more... um, seems more trustworthy. It seems um, more reliable. So, denial of... Such subtle forms of arising and ceasing is one of the basis of how Sanya Vipalasa operates. It just it just blocks out the fact that things change. Because I have a name for it, it must exist. Yeah. I reify it, if you want it philosophically. Uh, I make a thing out of it. Yeah. As soon as we have such things of the mind, we're in trouble. On one hand, we can juggle them, Yeah, this is nice. On the other hand, we never juggle what's really happening. We always juggle our little abstractions. Of them, and The abstractions have a tendency to be more solid and to be more real than they actually are. Yeah? Maybe you know that. History of philosophy is very easy to understand. If you're working analytically, you get smaller and smaller bits. Yeah? Your, ana- your analysis gets sharper and more trenchant, and... In the same process, the smaller and smaller you get, the more solidified the stuff seems to become. So at the end of it, when you're favoring analysis, you always end up with some kind of atomistic bits, yeah? a universe that is full of little bits where you don't really quite know where they belong anymore and how they relate to each other. It's kind of, it gets increasingly more bitty. Yeah? Abhidhamma... Grasped badly is a good example of this you know you have, This is not what it was intended for, but this is one of the ways it it can go wrong. Yeah? you have more and more fine analysis into smaller and smaller bits, and basically you've lost a piece, you know you've lost a hole somewhere, yeah or as one of the Greek philosophers says, it's just a a dust of particles we're kind of all a dust of particles. So Ditti uh, and Sanya Vipalasa, they often operate together because our perceptions are not careful because we don't pay close attention. That's the linchpin for bad perceptions. If you want bad perceptions, you don't need to espouse strange views or so. Just be superficial. Just rely on memory. Just be fast. Yeah? Just glance over. Be cursorily and you get beautifully distorted
1: perceptions.
0: (laughs) The perceptions will be largely influenced by the other, by the third big source for distortion. They will be influenced by what you like, by what you wish, by what you long for, in other words, by desire. And they will be strongly influenced by what you fear, namely what you're afraid of. Remember my mother, my anxious mother, Always stopped me when I wanted to play at the water. You know? And her justification for stopping me was always that I am dangerous.
1: Yeah.
0: A little later, say 40 years or so, I, I, it has occurred to me that this was never dangerous what I did. It was just she was afraid. Yeah? But she never declared, stop playing there because I'm afraid. She said, stop playing there because it's dangerous. Yeah. You're dangerous, in fact, to be honest. You do the things that makes me afraid. In other words, you stop, please. (laughs) You become responsible for my fears, please. That is what we do when we are under the sway of chitta vipalasa. We have our wishes, our desires, our longings, and our fears inform our perceptual process. In other words, things look more the way I would actually like them to look. You know. Or if I'm more of a fear type, then things are always incredibly risky. Yeah. So I always sit close to the door I could leave. You know. I never sit in a room, you know, always back to my wall because I want to see what's going on behind or um, um, park my car close to the entrance, or pay my bill as soon as I can so that I can leave immediately. Yeah. If we have fear type, there isn't so much choice you know. in this. You're either more of a greed type, or you're more of a hatred type, or you're more of a fear type, or you're more of a delusion type. This is about it. Yeah. The options aren't that great. <laughs> All of these options aren't that really great, you know. Generally, you envy the others. You know, if you're a fear type, you you, you envy the greedy ones because they seem to go for the nice bits while you're still t- trying to not lose whatever you have.
1: If um, you're know. if you're a, a
0: hatred type, you, you envy all of them because hatred <laughs> just feels so bad. <laughs> Basically, we all have a temperament, you know, and we in that temperament there will be a dominant streak. Yeah, that is either more about gratification and pleasure, which would Buddhist psychology would that it. So we're inclined to go for the nice bit. We're seeking enjoyment. So we go in, we want to see, sit with the nice people, the interesting people. We want to see is there something to eat, something to see, which is the soft seat. Let me get the soft one over there. <laughs> so that would be, be the greed type. Yeah? The greed types are nice people, they generally enjoy. They want to share because it increases their enjoyment. It's very pleasant to be around greed types. You know? <laughs> greed types are really lovable people. They have a glow, they're inviting, welcoming, they're warm, and it's nice to be around them. Hate types are not so nice to be around <laughs> They're generally a little sharp, a little edgy, you know, a little jumpy often. They come in and they immediately see what's wrong. Somebody's opened the window too much. There's a blotch on the wall over there. That... That curtain doesn't match, you know. (laughs) So they have an immediate facility to see what's not good, what's, you know, the the brilliant uh, troubleshooters, you know, they can walk into a corporation and immediately sus, information flow is not good, this guy has too much power, this guy doesn't do anything, you know, (laughs) excellent. It's an unpleasant condition to be in, but it's very useful.
1: (laughs) Good living out of
0: this. So the Greek type gets interior architect and the other guy gets troubleshooter, and so forth. Um, Spiritually, you want to get out of this. And the only way to get out of this is by actually understanding your number. you You have to understand what your bias is. You understand what your fears are. You understand what your prime interest is. And you will inevitably encounter vipalasas when you, you know, when you try to understand your number. That's why these vipallasas are interesting. They're not abstract Buddhist psychological concept that can be safely left in Pali books. They're happening. You see, if you're not awakened right now, there will be vipallasa at work. You know. Distortions will take place right now, and it's better to know what type of distortions you're prone to but not to know it. The Catholic upbringing I had, I've had, uh, enjoyed, uh, had a saying <laughs> that says, you know, the devil really has won when he has convinced you of his uh, absence. Yeah? And he has convinced you that he doesn't exist and he really has got you in your pocket. So it's better to know that your particular brand of distortion, your particular brand of uh, sanya. Chitta or DTV Palasa than not to know it because it's a lot more effective and a lot more likely to have powerful impact on your life if you don't know about your brand. So it's good to know whether you are more a fearful type or whether you're more an anger type, whether you have an easy proclivity to things enjoyable and uh, want things and look for gratification. Or if you're a confused type it means you're you're often prone to doubt. But there's always things that you don't understand. Yeah, it's too fast. You know, this is clear, this is clear, and then they say, and then it's over here, and then what happened here? And then you're never sure: is this first or is this second? Was this the cause or the result? Or should I do this, but I also want to do this? And, you know, how do they get together? They're mutually exclusive, and I want them both. You know how come? <laughs> you know, this is more the confusion type. You, are chumpy. Three steps in, three steps out. I go. You go along with the buffet and you don't know what to take, you know, because you, of all things, you know so much. And the things that you want most are the things that are not good for you. So you take a little bit of the ones that are good for you, but then you take more of the ones that are not good for you. The ones you really want. You, you kind of haggle and you you end up with a something a, a kind of compromise on your plate isn't it so the it's good to know one's one's particular inclinations in terms of the forms of vipassana consider that we create more stability than things are stable is i think obvious because of our needs for stability. We try to build solid, we try to invest in good banks, we try to mm, keep things that last to protect us with quality against impermanence. By the good thing. Um, Or we try to build trust Be faithful because if we are faithful, people are faithful with us. And then you know our relationships last longer. Or we we try to be just, you know. I'm a Swiss. So Swiss have never had a chance to run away. You know, if you're conflict and you live in Africa, basically if a big conflict, you just there's plenty of space. You just move on. You don't hash things out, you just move on. As long as it was possible, people moved southward in Africa. Just open a new crawl a bit further down rather than haggling things out. Um, this doesn't work anymore, even in Africa. But In Switzerland, you know, there's so little space. You know, to, to get your people through winter, you need so many cows. To get the cows through summer and winter, you need so much grass. To get the, so much grass, <coughs> you need so much, uh, I don't know what these things are called in English, uh, places for your, gra- your, your cows to, to graze in summer on the, on the, on the mountains. So you know all these things is needed to feed one human being for the six months when it's cold in winter. Okay? You can't have more space. You know? One third of your country is uninhabitable. The rest, you know, steep mountains, grim seasons. Um, so if you have problems, you need to hash it out. You need to make rules. You need to make sure that this does not blow your communities apart. You must make sure that this is done just as just as it gets, and to make it just. So you end up making laws, you make rules, you know, who's going to trim the hedge? Where can I build the path? How broad can the path be? Who's going to repair it if it's broken down? Who's going to do the bridge? Who's going to fix the bridge? Who's going to pay the bridge? Who's going to dig out the river? And so forth. You end up with lots and lots of little rules so that everything is as clear and neat and regulated as possible. Because that means, because we have a regulation, we can live together. We don't have to fight it out every single time. So, predictability is necessary if your space is tight. As the space on this planet gets more tight, we need to take care of this. You know? it's, This planet is, I'm hating to say, uh, in, Inevitably, going to get more Swiss.
1: <laughs> 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 it's not something I'm proud of.
0: <laughs> if it doesn't, you know, the guys who have the clout will, you know, will use up the oil and will, will put their dump their waste to the guys who, who don't have the clout, Yeah, and, and unless we're willing to to think about this globally, you know. Uh, We we need this. The views are easy to understand. We take safety. We gain certainty through views. Views are things that create community. People who share views generally hang out together. That doesn't necessarily make the 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 views accurate, but it creates community. It creates bonding. You ever notice how trouble talk is bonding, you know? Three guys out there packing cigarettes, talking about the boss. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately you have a kind of conspiratorial feel of bondedness at that moment. doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's right what we say, you know, that the boss is that way, but still we feel kind of a sense of solidarity and closeness, and shared, shared uh, reality is, is taking, taking place. That makes sense. Ditti vipalasa makes sense. Um, Ditti vipalasa is interesting. We overestimate the amount of happiness we can get out of things. We overestimate our contribution to a particular task, a particular result, a particular success story. We overestimate the long-lasting impact Our efforts, or our ideas, or our powers, have you know. If you look at how people (coughs) are willing to expect more than things can deliver under the best of circumstances, we want happiness, and we eat strawberries. Yeah, now strawberries can be quite nice. Good strawberries can be very nice, but no strawberry is ever going to make you completely content. If we only expect the sort of happiness of a strawberry the strawberry can deliver, we would be quite happy with strawberries. But actually, we don't want strawberries. We want happiness. We want the feeling the strawberry gives us. We don't want a strawberry. We don't want a car. Nobody wants one and a half tons of metal that rusts. Look <laughs> <the> parking <laughs> spaces. And... and and uh, age, and lose value every year, depreciation, and so forth. Nobody wants that. But we want mobility. We want independence. We want being able to get away with the kids over the weekend. We We want this, isn't it? We want the function and the feeling this gives us. We don't want the thing. But we confuse the thing with the feeling it has given us on occasions. But the very same thing that gives us mobility and independence gives us headaches when we're in a traffic jam or we don't find a parking space or we don't know how to pay the taxes for it. So the thing does not reliably give us the feeling we have identified the thing with. This is happening all the time. So we keep expecting feelings from things that these things only under certain august conditions can give us. And that's one of the major problems. The other problem is, you know, so Vipalasas do to us something of a distortion that makes us relate to world and ourselves and our experience in ways that are inappropriate. You could say they're empirical misjudgments or if you want to say they are mis- takes, yeah. you know, with a dash in between. On an empirical level, they do that to us. But they also, in a spiritual level, they do something to us. They are kind of miss searches We look for what we truly want in the wrong place. That's where they are having a, there's another twist there, that we, we can't help having longings. We can't help wanting to be happy. We can't help trying to create stability in a world of change. But we look in the wrong place. That is what the Buddha's message is saying. You can't object to the fact that your heart wants to be happy, that you wish to find that happiness through the ways that you have known to create happiness for yourself, namely by gratification. But no gratification you can create for yourself through sense experience is going to give you a lasting happiness, or is going to leave you Behind completely satiated and content, you know, for any length of time, none of them does that. Now we know that, but it's pretty stark to really let that come close. Yeah. So the Buddha says it's it's natural to be having desire. It's natural to be looking for happiness, and it's natural to sense a longing for something big. But as long as you keep looking in. Uh, Mullah Nasruddin box of sharp peppers, you know, you will not find sweetness in there. You will find peppers. You'll find more peppers, and you've tried this one, you can try the next one, but the sweetness you're looking for is not going to come from there. The sweetness you're looking for is going to come from somewhere else. You have to understand the process of your experience. That's where Buddhist meditation comes in. That's where... Meditation suggests, rather than railing against ignorance, it suggests to just look more closely. You know. Learn to steady your attentional focus on something. Anything. Yeah. Anything, if you stay with it long enough, will inevitably demonstrate impermanence, impersonality and unsatisfactoriness. Every aspect of your experience, if you stay with it for any time, you know, will start doing that. Okay, you tell me you can stay in bed and feel quite happy, it's quite comfortable, and you don't see the the aspect of suffering in here. How long can you stay in your bed? When do you get restless? When does your back start to hurt? When you get bored? When does gangrene set in? (laughs) Even if something apparently comfy is staying in the warmth of your sheets and having a soft environment... And a safe environment it does not provide you with contentment. It provides you with some confidence. There's a sweetness of pulling up your blankets and saying goodbye, cruel world, for today. You know. <laughs> but nobody wants to stay there. And this is just a little example for the rest of our world. So the Buddha says we need to turn our attention up to the world of our experience. It's not to be found out there. That's the incredibly powerful statement. If we turn our attention in an appropriate way to the very nature of our experience, therein we find the key to freedom, to happiness and to contentment. Namely, to complete understanding. This is powerful. I don't know anything more inspiring in the Buddhist teaching than this statement. It's not by placating the gods. It's not by becoming a superhuman being. It is not by... Uh, learning uh, magic, but it is by turning appropriate attention to the nature of your own experience and the process of how you respond to that experience that provides the key for your happiness, your understanding, and your contentment. So this is where the Buddha's big antidote to the Vipalasa is, is the Satipatthanas, is the, you know, the establishments of the forms of mindfulness. And he says the cultivation of what he calls radical attention or appropriate attention. The word in Pali, for those of you familiar with it, is yoniso manasikara. This is a fascinating concept. Yoni is the womb, more technically the uterus, and manas is the mind, karoti is to make, and the grammatical construction is, is an ablative that means understanding things from the womb, or metaphorically, from where they take their origin. Yeah? We take womb as in, in, in the meaning of where things take their origin. Maybe the Latin word radical from the root upward comes close to this. So, learning to pay attention in a way that understands things from the root is what is the antidote to those with If we do that interesting things happen. At the very end of this process, this is the good bit now, at the very end <laughs> of this, you, we, we we come to these gates of liberation. These gates of liberation are even less known than the Vipalasas. gates of liberation, the first one is a gate that comes through the practice of working with impermanence. So by holding closely uh, in the focus of our attention the feature of anicjata, of impermanence, we will enter the deathless through the gate of what the Buddhist teaching calls signlessness. Animita in gate of the signless. I'll explain in a moment. The second big gate is if we practice with the characteristic of Dukkata, or the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness, we will approach uh, the deathless, the unconditioned with, through the gate of the desirelessness, yeah? or the wishlessness, Apanihita, Vibokkadvara, the gate through which we, we, we don't wish things anymore to be different than they are. If we practice with the characteristic of selflessness, yeah? Of anatata or impersonality, then we approach nirvana through the gate of emptiness. Let me say something to these three key terms. The first one, animita is an interesting one. Nimita is a very has many meanings. Uh, there is a, a very well-known theory about Nimita in meditation te- technique. It's a in the Visuddhi market, is described as a visual image which we then can stabilize our mind's attention on. But this is only one usage of the word. In our term here, animita is something the mind latches to. Remember, when we experience reality, our sensory experience is f- in flux. It's dynamic. It's processual. Yeah. All things we experience, our senses only operate in terms of Process. It's very difficult to have a static experience and stay aware of it. Our senses need contrast. If we don't have contrast, our senses stop operating. Sounds we keep hearing, we we screen out. Smells we keep smelling, we screen out. So we need movement, we need change, we need contrast. So our mind latches on to a particular Defining characteristic of something. This is a man, this is a woman, this is blue, this is yellow, this is blonde, this is important, this is not important. Our mind creates signs and then it latches on to this sign. So the creation of a characteristic feature, of a hallmark, uh, is what a connotes. So we have something of a stabilizing of that dynamic process. We kind of... We hover, and then we snatch a part of that flowing dynamic experience, fish it out, and give it a name, and take this as the defining limita, as the characteristic of that experience. So dentist, as a characteristic experience, is it hurts. Or it doesn't hurt, but it's expensive. Or... (coughs) or it's all about young assistants and generally a slightly older gentleman who has all kinds of horrific equipment <laughs> <laughs> and then they do things and they talk to me and I would like to answer and I can't because they... <laughs>
1: uh,
0: so the nimita of dentist experience, dental experience is helplessness me there with all this kind of in my stuff in my mouth trying not to to gag And they talking to me about their weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you'd you'd be in agreement with me that, you know, dental experience can rain quite quite a bit. I have a very interesting dentist. He pulls up my legs and straightens my pelvis because he's learned that. And I have found enough trust in me to uh, undergo this procedure. I have a very interesting dentist. He teaches me how to meditate. He doesn't know what I'm doing, so he tells me to breathe into my
1: nose. <laughs> the, <very> <laughs> nose <laughs> the
0: dental experience can be quite a lot, but we probably have a hallmark. We have identified a single nimitta for this experience, and whenever say, somebody says dentist, then that comes up. Being. Freeing the mind's attention from latching onto such signs, such nimitas, is uh, a very powerful practice and something that allows us to get more in touch with the ultimately dynamic nature of our experience. We stop surfing only on the uh, on the most dominant features or on the nimitas we have basically created. There's a slightly causal notion in the term nimita, so the nimita is a creation. It's already a slight imposition of our mind to get a handle on a flowing dynamic experience. So if we steady and refine our attentional focus on impermanence, these nimitas will wane away. We get a more realistic and a more immediate connection with the intrinsic changefulness of all experience. We lose the illusion that we can hang on to things. We lose the illusion that things are more solid than they in fact are. And that's one of the gates that leads to the deathless. The second one is very easy and understandable. It is because... I begin to become aware of the pain that is thing, in things or the effort it takes to get these things that I feel gratified by or the fact that even if I do get gratified, they'll be taken away from me or I'll get bored with them or my neighbors get it before I get it or something like that. There's many ways we can suffer, even when we get gratified. And a deeper acquaintance with that pervasiveness of, the, of that hallmark of existence leads us to be less prone to longings and wishing. We begin to be less happy to just follow our wishing mind. There's something in us that is, um, what's the word, reconciled? or Kind of an an emotional aloofness sets in. We're becoming more cool, in the truest sense of the word. The third one, I think is also quite plausible the practice with the characteristic of impersonality lets us see the transparency of our mental and emotional process we we begin to see an emptiness that doesn't mean it has no value no. emptiness in the indian mind does not mean it's hollow and nothing worth it is an emptiness as if you know the banana tree it has no core there is a banana, it has a stem, but you don't actually find the pith of that thing because it's sheaves uh, uh, of, of huh, I don't know what to des- how to describe that, you know. The plant is like an onion. It doesn't actually have a proper core. It has layers, and these layers are folded within each other. So it creates stability. It exists quite definitely, but you can't say this is the hard core of it. So in the same way practising with impersonality uh, lets us deeply realise the fundamental emptiness of experience, the fundamental emptiness of the self construct, the fundamental emptiness of what is experience, experienceable through my senses, you know all things recognising not the thing that is frontmost, but actually seeing the, the string of conditions that have led to that. Uh, recognizing all the contingencies that are in that thing. So the teachings tell us that if we practice with impermanence, with a mind that is endowed with atimokka, with decisiveness, with determination, then we will go through that gate of uh, the signless If we practice with tranquility, endowed with tranquility, with the quality of suffering and unsatisfactory, then we will go through the gate of wishlessness. And if we practice with wisdom, a mind endowed with wisdom, practice with the quality of impermanence, then we will go through the gate of emptiness towards the goal. Good. Let me stop here. Uh, There is more to this, and I trust you find ways, means, to get there if you want more. Uh, But for tonight, I think, let us end, and I see that there are some questions I can respond to. Maybe we can open a few windows to get some air in here. Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you.
2: Uh, I I don't remember ever hearing about Zipalasa's is that how you say it? And I, I remember a couple of years ago here in this very hall, a teacher was speaking about delusion. And I asked, you know, what, How? if I'm deluded, how do I know I'm deluded? I and mean, how do I know which of my thoughts are deluded? And he said, no worries. You can just trust that they're all delusions. <laughs> so I actually, you know, worked with that a little bit. And uh, I came to understand a bit what he, what he meant. But I'm, I'm grateful for your, your you know, you're really your delineating that and I'm looking forward to re-listening to what you said tonight once it's on, uh CV here, borrowing it from here, because it was like, you know, a bit more than I could uh, digest. Um, so thank you. Um, a, question, a number of questions have come up, uh, and you uh, know other people have questions, so I'll, I'll try to make it my, pick, pick my... Uh, the most pressing one. I've been exposed to a lot of non-dual teachers, you may be aware that there's a lot of teachers going from all over the world, going all over the world, promoting and teaching non-dualism, Vedanta. Uh, And I have to say I've been attracted to that, and I continue to be attracted to Buddhism. And I've been trying to understand, you know, the difference, and you pointed to to three differences. I came up with one as you pointed to at least three. And but the one uh, you pointed to that, uh, that most interests me is the one about there's no uh, there's no big self, there's no big S. And in these teachings as I'm hearing them with the modern interpretations, um, the the fact that there is awareness and that whenever I check into this system, there is awareness, is evidence that there is something permanent. Awareness is always there, it always has been there, it always will be there. So I guess, in a way, what they're saying is, the big S does exist. Now, just let me say one other thing about this. I've heard Buddhist teachers even here say, often quote, Nisargadatta, that so there seems to be an attraction even amongst Buddhists to you know the non-dual teachings. what they say, uh, the one that they quote Nisargadatta about, is... uh, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Um, So, I don't know, I I don't even know how to phrase my question, but you probably Mm -hmm. get what I'm trying to understand.
0: First of all, that teacher who said, all your thoughts are illusions, I think he's right, or (laughs) she is right. it's just that there are some, some delusions or, you know, there's a graduation of them and <laughs> we should generally go through the, <clears throat> through the softer forms of it, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, by tendency. Yeah. Any thought does not represent the nature of reality. No thought can do that. As soon as I have a thought, discursive thought particularly, does not do justice to the nature of reality. Uh, I cannot quote really on on Advaita teachings. Um, I understand the appeal. I, I guess, you know, the point, the vantage point. This is what I understand of it. Is a different one. Yeah. Uh, Advaita teachings are monotheistic teachings. They're monist teachings, not monotheistic. Sorry. They're, they they have. A perspective that is maybe more philosophical. Well my appreciation for early Buddhism is that this perspective is psychological. Yeah? When the Buddha speaks of the world, he speaks of the world of your experience, not of the world as objective things out there. Uh, in the Buddhist take, you know, suffering does exist, happiness does exist. These things are not illusions. These things are Not permanent, but they do exist. They do take place. They are real. Not as real as we make them in terms of making eternal things out of them or stabilizing them. But they do occur. They do happen. The power of the early Buddhist teaching seems to be the encouragement to investigate. One big difference I see is... um, You know, in Buddhist teaching you have an encouragement of effort to develop things, to give things up, to understand things, to investigate things, to let go of things, to cultivate things. Yeah? So it is quite hands-on. Yeah? It is not just... You know, there are different metaphors of realization. You know, One metaphor is, uh, there is a bad habit. You have to get rid of your bad habit. You know, stop doing the bad habit, understand the negative consequences of your bad habit, and gradually wean yourself off from that bad habit. Eightfold path is a very good example of that metaphor. You know, give things up, develop things, strengthen things that are already good, and call it to things that are not here. There's another metaphor, which is very appealing. I believe in Advaita teachings to be more... That metaphor is more current in Advaita teachings that says... The problem is not a bad habit. The problem is uh, a fundamental lack of understanding. All you need to do is just open your eyes and the world is already perfect. Stop believing your thought and the world is perfect. Both of these are metaphors of realization, isn't it? One realization says, you know, do this, stop doing that, cultivate this, train that, develop this... uh, and you know this is true, practical, quite true. This is the lotus that grows out of the mud you know through the murky water or up to the surface, and then opens its petals into pristinely into the light, yeah having its roots in the in the in the mud It's a beautiful metaphor. it says from the imperfect comes the perfect, but it's never quite true it's a metaphor, no metaphor is ever true because. The closer you get, you know, it also gets harder and harder. And basically, you know, it's it's like in Sinos' Paradox. You you take half of the way and then the way is halved and then that half is to be halved and then that half is to be halved. It also means you never get there, you know, because the closer you get, the farther away it seems to move because the distances you can progress seem to become smaller and smaller. So that, the negative part of that metaphor is that it... You never get there. You seem never perfect enough to practice. The positive aspect is, obviously, you create good conditions, you create foundations. With these foundations, you have better chances to understand more difficult things, and you grow. It's quite hands-on. The kick of the next metaphor is you just open your eyes, and it's already there. you You look at the child, and you don't see some grubby little thing that doesn't know how to park backwards and that doesn't pay taxes, you know, <laughs> you see this is a perfect being, okay, it's two months old but you recognize the perfection in that, you don't see it as an unfinished human being, you know who isn't the proper citizen of that country, yet. you, you look at it and say this is miraculous, look at this it's perfect, it's got, you know all the fingers and all the toes and it knows so many things which, which I haven't taught him you recognize the perfection of this. At the same time, you know, sometimes with that metaphor of just opening our eyes, falling back into primordial suchness, and you know, <laughs> waking up and reverberating with the, you know, the intrinsic nature of the universe, we kind of sit here and actually nothing has changed. Yeah, we fool ourselves. So both of these metaphors have their perks and their disadvantages. Learn, learn. My suggestion would be learn from wherever you can learn. Any trick in the book, if it helps, is legit. That's my take.
1: <laughs> yeah. Please.
2: Thank you. Um, so, just to be clear, so it's basically what you're saying is not to come to. All to your experiences with preconceived notions of what you have learned about things or people from the past? And is that the same as the idea of the not knowing or that the beginner's mind?
0: Yeah, I, this is a, an ideal. I, I am under no illusion that you cannot come to things without preconceived notions, but just the willingness to actually investigate your preconceived notion already strikes me as a tremendous progress yeah? you know many of our notions are not conscious conscious we have notions of, about ourselves and about others that that are not conscious so just to to investigate and m- most of those unconscious notions they can persist because we are not interested or motivated or skilled in investigation. It's the investigation that brings consciousness into things. And human beings want to wake up. The mind is economical. You know, It doesn't do things that don't work if we investigate the consequences of what it does. It only keeps doing things that don't work if we studiously avoid such investigation. As soon as we find out that what we do doesn't work, we stop doing it. Or we look for alternatives. I am... Strategic optimist. Human beings want to wake up and want to stop suffering. So, just to investigate one's notions and check their accuracy, maybe they can be updated. Maybe they can be made more accurate. They will be still not quite accurate, but better than they are. That alone is 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 encouraging, and it's obviously fostering growth.
1: Yeah. Please. I once read something uh, by Richard Feynman where he talked about um, if you consider the, sens- the influx of sensory information you get um, and what you do with it, it's miraculous that you can create shape and form and so on and so on. Um, and it's so- some of your talk kind of to me seems like it moves the other way, it moves into deconstructing. What we do with this, uh, and it's—it seems to me that it's a good wake-up call to be humble about what. In fact, when you talk to physicists, it is all formless wave, particle, and we are constructing it. And you have to be really careful about construction. And I, um, and I guess for me, I—I I look for Buddhism to remind me that it is shape and formless. And I look elsewhere sometimes to get a wisdom about how to construct stuff. Um, so I just think that, that part, I, I don't know what you think about that, but it seems that you need both in a way. Um, you know, you,
0: you basically will will see in accordance to how you look. You, know, you can... I've looked for Bud, in, in, in Buddhism a long time, exactly as you described. You know, you... The, the universal element is very obvious, the transpersonal element is very obvious, you know. Um, But actually, I look into Buddhist teachings now and I find an immense amount of very small, skillful means in in application of um, attention, growing understanding. If you learn to disentangle these teachings from, you know, their cultural uh, bias uh, and their language and if you can contextualize some of that, suddenly an immense amount of it gets very, very pragmatic. And you could probably find, even within Buddhist teaching, what you describe as looking for elsewhere. The two, two, I I very much find tools in it. I, I... I it was for me also the looking elsewhere. I have looked in, in psychology and I found suddenly things that were stated in psychological terms that I hadn't read or seen when I looked into Buddhist teachings. But having looked at them in psychological terms, I could also find them in Buddhism because I now knew what to look for. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know The language is, is different. And it, it takes, you know, some things you need to hold a long time on your tongue before they yield juice. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so this comes from a long distance to us, two and a half thousand years and a different culture. And, uh, you know, you need to, un- to, to patch Buddhism together. You need to understand some of its context, and that takes some time. So I think it's a perfectly legitimate way what you describe. We learn from everything, and then we... You know we find some some aspects are more clearly stated in this tradition or in that tradition i I stop trying to find everything in one package to be I hope you hear my affirmation yes. <laughs> good last question good we're done <laughs> um,
1: would you say that um in a way that the teaching is saying that true happiness comes out of a process of losing your delusions
2: and and perceiving truthfully.
0: Definitely, yeah. Definitely, Ill- delusions are really bad for happiness. Delusions means it hurts. At the end of it, at the end of it, it's gonna hurt, and you're gonna pay the bill.
1: Actually, I didn't mean it more like at that level, but I meant more like ultimate gratification is is a sense of
2: perceiving more truth, like feeling you're approaching more truthful
0: perception, just in and out. Yes, you will understand more about your genuine needs, you will understand more about your possibilities, you will understand more about your resources if you pay closer attention and look underneath the hood and underneath the label you have given your experiences, underneath the nimitta, the teaching would say. Yeah? Okay. Thank you for your attention and patience. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.